Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Summer in New England, when weekend excursions to the shoreline or trips to the Cape are common. Much of what we know about the ocean can be credited to marine biologists and oceanographers. One of the most well-known explorers of our time is Dr. Robert Ballard, best known for discovering the Titanic. But his explorations go well beyond that. Dr. Ballard was in Hartford recently to speak at the World Affairs Council of Connecticut's 2017 Luminary Award Ceremony. Dr. Ballard's also founder and president of the Ocean Exploration Trust, an explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society, commissioner for the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, and professor and director of the Center for Ocean Exploration at the University of Rhode Island. He joins us by phone. Dr. Ballard, did I cover everything? Well, I could throw in a few more, but that's enough. (laughs) I want to start by asking you, where in the world is Dr. Ballard? Where are you right now? Well, I I just got home for an hour, and I'm about to get in the car. Uh, I've been out getting my ship of exploration, the EV Nautilus, uh, launched on its six-month 2017 field season. And then at the same time, we finally know what our budget is, because <laughs> Congress has finally passed a, a bill. Well, that sounds like good news. Tell us where the EV Nautilus is headed over the next six months. Well, it's, gonna, it's going to be working in the Pacific Ocean, which is a third of our planet. We, we, we've moved the ship at the request of our sponsor, which is NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration. Uh, there's two ships of exploration, the EV Nautilus and the Okeanos Explorer, and ours is a is privately owned by my trust. And our mission, which is pretty cool, is to go where no one has gone before on planet Earth, but with an emphasis upon uh, the 50% of our country that lies beneath the sea. Most people don't realize that the United States has the largest amount of underwater real estate that it owns. It's actually equal to the size of the land mass above water. And unlike uh, uh, President Jefferson, which created the Lewis and Clark expedition when he doubled America with the Louisiana Purchase, we're only just now beginning to look at the 50% of our country that lies underwater. So we're going to be working all along the entire west coast of the United States, all the way from Canada all the way up to, to uh, down to Mexico, and that's the main focus of this particular uh, series of expeditions. Now, uh, people can actually follow along as your you researchers. Can. Tell us uh, about that. We just did all our shakedown. I was just I have a back channel, so I've been able to watch. <laughs> we just did a shakedown cruise off our home port, which is in at Alta Sea in Santa in San Pedro, California, where we've moved and now have set up our our, our, our home. And so you can go to nautiluslive.org and you step into the command center with us because we once we get deployed, it's constant. Once we get our vehicles down, we stay down 24 hours a day. And you can tune in, listen, send questions. Last field season, we took and answered, believe it or not, 60,000 questions. Tell me more about the researchers on the EV Nautilus and how they get on this ship. Well, we take a lot of teachers. We take a lot of students. We take a lot of educators. In fact, our primary focus is 
to have most of the experts on land and call them when we need them, doctors on call. So this opens up a lot of space on the ship, and I've mandated a couple things because they can because I own and operate the Nautilus, and one of them is that 55% of what we call our core of exploration will be women in positions of leadership and authority. In fact, the expedition leader right now that's on the ship is Dr. Nicole Renault, and she'll be relieved by uh, Allison Fundus. And so we have uh, women uh, in all the high positions of the trust and our core of exploration uh, leading it. And I also want all the faces of our country. I want a child to see their face in our core to know they can play. Dr. Ballard, one of your most famous accomplishments is discovering the Titanic in 1985. How did you begin this journey as an oceanographer? began it very early. I'm 75 next month, and I started uh, on a script ship out of La Jolla in 1959 when I was 17. I went out and I got rescued by the Coast Guard when the ship almost got sank in a, in a, in a, in a giant rogue wave. But when I was growing up, I grew up in San Diego and then later Los Angeles. And my father was heading up the Minuteman Missile Program in the 50s and 60s. And I, my parents asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said I want to be Captain Nemo. And fortunately, because I'd read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and I'd seen that amazing Disney movie with, uh, with uh, James Mason as Nemo, and, and uh, Kirk Douglas was, uh, was, uh, was uh, the person who tried to, Ned, who tried to harpoon the Nautilus and bounced his harpoon off the ship. And I saw that movie, and it just captivated me. But so my parents, fortunately... I did not laugh at my passion. You should never laugh at a child's passion. It's the cruelest thing you can do, even if it's crazy like I want to be Captain Nemo. Now, I'm sure my parents went into the other room and said, you know, Houston, we have a problem. But they they said, well, tell me more about Captain Nemo. And I said, he had a submarine. It was called the Nautilus. And fortunately, I lived in San Diego, and they took me down. This is in the 40s because I was born in 1942. And I went aboard a diesel submarine. And I got so infatuated, I went on to become a naval officer in deep submergence and spent 30 years in the Navy diving in all sorts of submarines. But they then also said, well, Nautilus is more than a submarine. I said, yeah, there's a big window. It opens like the iris of a lens. And they said, well, that sounds like an oceanographer. And again, right down the street was Scripps, the largest oceanographic institution on the planet. And so I then went on to get a Ph.D. in oceanography. So I'm really a kid. I was, I was originally born in Wichita, Kansas, where, where all oceanographers come from. But I then family moved because I was born six months after Pearl Harbor. My father was flying with Chuck Yeager out in the desert and, and test, test pilot. And so uh, I was able to plant this, this kid from Kansas in the warm sands of Southern California. And, you know, God bless this country. It lets people have the opportunity to live their dreams. And I did it. You said on that first uh, expedition, you almost uh, sank. Yeah. Most people, if they go through an, uh, an event like that, they're like, I'm not doing that again. But you, that made you even more committed, more... Uh, well, I was a surfer, you know, and when I saw that rogue wave, I was up on the bridge, and I went, oh, that's a wave. <laughs> And it ate the ship. I mean, we went under. It, it, ate, it ate us. And fortunately, we had enough uh, resilient uh, buoyancy to come back up the other side. And I went, wow. I mean, we were off, uh, uh, off Eureka, off the northern coast of California, about 500 miles out when we got hit and got busted up. And then the Coast Guard came out and walked us in and and then they say, well, you're going to have to go get another ship. You're going to have to fix this one. So I, you know, I, I just fell in love with the, 
the process of going where no one has gone before on our planet. Because, see, I don't believe that Mars is an exit strategy. There is no exit strategy for the human race. And you can't think you can mess up this planet and get away. I mean, Superman had a choice, and he chose Earth over Mars, okay? So we need to, we need to excite young people. At particularly middle school kids, we focus mostly on middle school ki- children with our live broadcasts because that's when children form their passions. And we want their passion to be to understand this creature called Earth on which we live, which we are completely, totally dependent upon. And we need to l- learn how to live in harmony with this planet. And to do that, we have to first understand it. And when, when, when you look at NASA's budget, it's a thousand times larger the NOAA's ocean exploration budget. That's nuts. And so we need to get the public focused on not thinking they're going to escape, but knowing they're going to live on our planet, because 95% of the human race lives on less than 5% of Earth. Mm. Think about that. Mm. Dr. Ballard, um, you mentioned that so often we focus on what's above us and not what's below. You know, what do you see as the main challenges um, that we face, our oceans face? Well, the main challenge is our population continues to rise, and we're eating up all our farmland. At the, the, you know, there's very little land that's inhabitable on the planet. Like I said, 95% or less than 5% of the planet, because 72% of it's oceans, and of the 28, 40% is uninhabitable. You know, the polar regions, the, the desert regions. So what little land we have, we're building houses on them at the expense of our farmland. So if you look at the population in the United States, it's going up, and you look at the available farmland, it's going down. So we must turn to the sea. But we, we've got to, got to be smart about it. If you look right now, we have caught 90% of the large fish in the sea. Why? Because we're eating the top carnivores. We're eating the lions and tigers of the sea. We need to do what we did 11,000 years ago on land when we said, no, we're going to domesticate a sheep and a goat, and we're going to cultivate wheat and corn, and we're going to live off the, the energy of the planet that makes grass and immediately turns it into something we can eat. So we need to move away from a hunter-gatherer society, which is what we're still doing in the ocean, to a farming and herding society, and, and not only sustain what's in the sea, but increase its productivity. I'm all about looking at the ocean as having amazing ability, if we manage it properly and we farm it and we herd it, to greatly increase the food supply of the sea. So that's what we need to do. When you look at the future of the Earth's oceans and we look at climate change, we hear about coral bleaching. You mentioned overfishing, pollution. What concerns you? How can we um, stem this tide, so to speak? The single most important, you know, I've been asked that question, as you can imagine, a few times, and I've served on presidential commissions, and I have one answer. Because if you give a politician 10, they'll cherry pick, take the easy ones. I'm not really worried about planet Earth being around in a billion years. I'm worried about the human race being around in a thousand years. The single most important thing the human race can do to ensure its survival is the empowerment of women, pure and simple, the empowerment of women. Because women, right now, the average age of a mother on planet Earth is 19, and that's average. And do you really think that 19-year-old girl wants to have a baby? Some do, but most don't. 
because they haven't been empowered. When microloans, for example, when you empower a woman and she's able to, in the United States, more women in the workforce now than men. The secret weapon of the United States, not so secret, are our women because they're becoming empowered. Not quite there yet, but they're on a good track, certainly on my team. I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Ballard, a famous oceanographer. Um, You mentioned politicians a a little bit ago. I wanted to ask you about this proposal um, of uh, the Trump administration to review uh, uh, monuments around our country, including the future of marine monuments. What's your take? Well, you know, know, like any serious debate, there's two sides to the coin. And and yes, I, I, I think the key thing that's important, because I'm working with the National Marine Sanctuaries right now, and sanctuaries are critical because they are like the, you know, think of deep sea corals are like the mangroves. They're where little kids can hide, little things can hide. And you need to be able to have the habitat so that you can have the nurseries and marine sanctuaries properly done are the nurseries for the commercial fishermen. So what we, but the fundamental important thing that needs to be done. It's like the recipe for chicken soup. First you get the chicken. The most important thing you need to do is to is to explore our exclusive economic zone which in which our sanctuaries are located. You need to know what we're preserving. So we need to and that's why the sanctuaries are now stepping up to the plate and saying we need to go beyond the scuba diving depths. We need to go into the deeper parts of our marine sanctuaries and into the deeper parts of our exclusive economic zone and find out what's there and then be very clever in how we write our boundaries. So I understand, you know, when they when you create a something and you've never been there, that's you know you, you need to think about that. It's really critical that we are we are going out now and thank gosh in the budget that just got passed was an increase an increase in the National Marine Sanctuary program. So that's a pretty good trend because that was passed by the House and Senate. And so this is showing you that there's there are smart people looking at these issues and they're putting their money where their mouth is. Mm-hmm. So I'm tickled with what I saw, an increase in the Marine Sanctuary Program budget in FY17. Mm-hmm. So you can hear things, but you've got to see what's happening on the ground. What's the action being taken? Mm-hmm. I mentioned the Titanic, uh, again, one of your most famous accomplishments, but what do you see as, as your legacy? Oh, that wasn't it. <laughs> I mean, that was cool. <laughs> I mean, that was cool. We knew it was there. I mean, really, when I look at Back upon my career, it, this, the, it, the single most important discovery I had a part to play in was when I was co-chief scientist of the 1977 expedition off the Galapagos Islands where we found the first hydrothermal vents that, that showed us where life began on our planet and how to find it elsewhere within our solar system and even the universe. The discovery of chemosynthetic life forms that are living not off the energy of photosynthesis. We threw out our biology book that day. And we're living on the energy of the planet itself. That, you know, that was a big discovery. And then two years later, when we found the first high-temperature black smokers off the East Pacific Rise off Mexico at 21 degrees north, we found chimneys blasting out material at 350 degrees centigrade, hot enough to melt lead, depositing rich deposits of copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold. And more importantly, we discovered that the entire volume of the world's oceans is going inside the planet now at every six to eight million years, which finally made it possible for us to understand the chemistry of the world's oceans and to balance all those equations. 
So those discoveries smoked the Titanic when it came to the scientific community, but Titanic wasn't bad. You've had such a long career. How many expeditions are you up to now? I stopped counting at 150. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting now because my ship is at sea for six months. How do you count that? Okay. Is that one? Uh, and what's, given the technology we have, I don't have to be on the ship anymore. I can be in a, I have my own command centers. We have command centers actually all over the United States, actually all over the world, where when you step into the command center, you're on the ship. And you're able to, to uh, you're there. Because the robots are down there, and we're looking at everything they're seeing on the ship at the same time. In fact, in constant communication with one another. So when you tune into nautilus5.org, you're on the ship. You're, you're seeing what I'm seeing. You're hearing what I'm hearing. You can listen to the conversations. So how do you count that? So we're moving our spirits now. We're, we're moving away from the physical presence to telepresence. In fact, the generation of middle school children we're trying to reach right this second will be the greatest generation of explorers on the, in the history of the human race because that generation will explore more of Earth than all previous generations combined. I'll be a footnote in about 100 years. Some explorer in middle school will have done some amazing things that unfortunately I probably won't hear about. <laughs> Dr. Robert Ballard, thank you so much for speaking with us. And, My and pleasure. We'll be, we'll be following you along on NautilusLive.org in a few months. Dr. Robert Ballard is an ocean explorer and scientist. He's also founder and president of the Ocean Exploration Trust and explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society, commissioner for the U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, and professor and director of the Center for Ocean Exploration at the University of Rhode Island. He was in Hartford recently for the World Affairs Council of Connecticut's 2017 Luminary Award Ceremony. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, marine conservationist Jonathan White joins us to talk about his new book, all about the mystery and spirituality of tides. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tides are mysterious and dangerous if you aren't careful. Jonathan White knows this firsthand. The marine conservationist and sailor had a particular experience that led him to research the force responsible for keeping the seas on our planet in constant motion. His new book is called Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. He joins us today from the studios of Don Ross Productions in Eugene, Oregon. Jonathan White, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lucy. I understand that you grew up surfing and fishing, among other activities in Southern California. Tell us about your connection to the ocean. 
Well, I did grow up in Malibu in Southern California. So surfing, sailing, kayaking, scuba diving, water skiing, beachcombing, all those things. And it, it seemed like I always had a tide chart in my back pocket when I was living there. And I, I actually left fairly early at the age of uh, 13 up to the Northwest. Um, but I didn't, uh, I think in some ways the ocean got in my blood and it really hasn't ever left. You know, some people are fearful of the ocean. It's so powerful. What is it about the ocean, though, that, that drew you to it where you were not afraid? Well, I, I think it's largely just because I grew up on it. I mean, literally, I grew up right on the beach. So it was part of my life, like eating breakfast or lunch or dinner. And, and uh, so I never was separate from it. And um, so I consequently, I didn't, I mean, I have a healthy fear of it. But um, it was so comfortable for me to be in it and near it that um, I think I've just really always enjoyed it. We're talking to you today because you're the author of the book Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Tell us about that event that happened that first got you thinking more about the power of the tides. Yes. Uh, well, when I left Malibu, I built a small boat, a 26-foot sloop, when I graduated from college up in Lewis and Clark in Oregon. And I sailed that boat around the Pacific and the Atlantic and the, and the Caribbean. And in a lot of ways, I paid my dues um, sailing offshore in that boat. And then in my early 20s, I bought a big old wooden schooner. I started a school on the boat. We did seminars up and down the coast from Seattle to Alaska for about 11 years. And it was a really wonderful 11 years, very rich um, in experience and exploration and working with people on the boat. But one not so fun experience was going aground in a huge tide and gale up in southeast Alaska in the early 90s. And I almost lost the boat. I mean, the boat was completely flooded with water. And we did eventually get it out and revived. And the, and the boat actually went out on the next seminar a few days later. But I nearly lost it. And I decided that after that point, I would learn how the tides worked. Because I knew the moon had something to do with it, um, but I wasn't sure what. And uh, I thought I'd read a couple of books and a couple of articles and learn everything there was to know about the tide. But uh, I was wrong. There was a lot more to it. And uh, a couple of books and a couple of weeks quickly turned into 50, 100, 300 books and about 10 years of study. You mentioned that tides are very complex. It took you a long time uh, to do the research to try to learn as much as you can about tides. Why are they so complicated? Well, it's a good question, and I don't know that I have the answer to that exactly, but they are. And interestingly enough, in my 10 years of research and uh, traveling around the, the world, really, um, to study this. I took some element of the tide, and I went to where it was most dramatically at play, and I talked to researchers and scientists and oceanographers and fishers and um, just people who lived near the water, including monks that practice uh, have a religious practice in Mont-Saint-Michel in France. So I got a lot of different perspectives, and I I think that uh, one of the interesting things is that uh, even a lot of the oceanographers I talked to were perplexed, still perplexed by the tides. It's, uh, it's been a very challenging subject for as long as it's been studied, and it's been studied for a long, long time. Break it down for us. Tell us what, what exactly are tides and how they work. You mentioned the moon. Yes. Yeah, so um, strictly speaking, tides are an astronomically influenced change in sea level. So it would be uh, 
influenced by the sun and the moon primarily and, and their relationship to the earth. And really kind of what it boils down to is that the moon is the largest influence, but the sun has about 50% the influence of the moon. And it's really about whether the moon and the sun are working together to create larger tides or they're working at odds with one another to create not-so-large tides. And something you wrote about was really interesting, I never really thought about it, that the Atlantic is strongly tuned to the moon, the Pacific, more to the sun, and that's how we get these mixed tides in the Pacific. Tell us more about that. Yes, uh, it, that's a big subject. It's um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about this process for me is that um, I kept encountering, you know, mind-blowing facts about the tides. Um, and the complexity, of course, and um, and and another challenge is to try to or is to have to keep a lot of different elements of the tide in my mind at once, um, because some of them seem contradictory. Like the tide is a large or a long wave that travels around the world at the speed of a modern jet, but it's also about vibration and about resonance. And that's what, um, where we get back to your question, that, that the tide or the ocean basins of the world resonate with the different so-called calls from the sky or from the solar system. So to boil that down a little bit, um, the analogy that I like to use is singing in the shower. And when we sing in the shower and we hit that particular note that makes the shower stall uh, resonate with our voice, Let's just say it's the note C. And when we hit that note, suddenly the shower stall resonates with that and our voice gets rich and full and brilliant and we feel like a genius, right? <laughs> and uh, so that's resonance. And if you blow that analogy up to the size of the universe or, for, or the solar system, the singing are the various relationships of the earth, moon, and sun that I mentioned earlier, new moon, full moon, half moon, you know, so forth. And the shower stalls are the ocean basins of the world that resonate with different notes from the universe. So getting back to your question, that's a long route, I know, but uh, the Atlantic resonates with so-called calls from the moon more than the sun, although it does resonate with both. The Pacific being the largest basin in the world resonates more with the sun than any other basin. Since we're talking about opposite sides of the earth, how is it possible for there to be two high tides? You write about that. Yes. Um, so if you imagine yourself standing somewhere in Connecticut, let's just say, and the moon is full and overhead, uh, that you would expect a high tide, a bulge in the ocean to be right underneath the moon, and you're standing in a high tide. Well, by the force of centrifugal force, uh, there's also a bulge on the other side of the Earth. And that's um, created by centrifugal force, which is really the same kind of force that makes us want to spin out when we drive too fast around a corner. It's a Greek word meaning um, to flee. So there's another bulge on the opposite side of the Earth that's caused by the moon's circular orbit around the Earth. So if you imagine yourself, uh, again, in Connecticut, and you're in a full tide with a full moon overhead, about 12 hours later, half of a day, you're on the opposite side of the Earth, and you're underneath that other bulge. 
Mm. So, and, and then in between, you're in a valley, which is low tide. So you start out at full at high tide. Six hours later, you're in a low tide. Tw- 12 hours later, you're in another high tide in the other opposite bulge. And then another 18 hours, you're in another valley, and then you full do a full circle. So that's two tides a day, two highs and two lows. Mm. This is where we live. Today we're talking with Jonathan White. He wrote the book Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Uh, you traveled around the world to learn more about tides. Tell us about those specific travels, starting with a, a monastery in France. Yes. So uh, like I said earlier, I, I took some element of the tide and I went to where it was most dramatically at play. So I went to Mont Saint-Michel in France, which is on the west coast of Normandy, to a monastery there that has been, it was built in the 7th century. It's been uh, an active monastery ever since that time. And it's got a 45-foot tide, one of the largest in the world and certainly the largest in mainland Europe. And it's completely tide-wrapped. So when the tide is out, the ocean is about 10 miles away. And then when it comes in, it races across these sand flats and wraps around the monastery. Jonathan, can you tell us more about when we think about tides, that connection to spirituality, and what you learned when you were there? Yes. You know, the subtitle of the book, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean, really didn't come until later. I, I didn't set out thinking that that's what this was going to be. I, I wanted to learn how the tides worked, you know, from a scientific point of view. But the more I studied, the more people I met, the more I realized that that people do have a very deep spiritual connection with the tide, with the coastal zones, with waves, with the ocean, with the tide. And when I was in Mont Saint-Michel, I met the the monks there, and I wanted to interview them about their relationship with the tide, because they have a spiritual practice there, of course, and they're de- they've dedicated their life to God. Yet, they're, they're smack in the middle of this amazing phenomenon that every day wraps around their monastery. So I figured that they must have some kind of a relationship, a spiritual relationship with the tide, or that it influences their practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a couple of years to get permission to interview them, and they finally allowed me to come to a silent lunch and a half-hour interview. And I got to pick the time, and I picked the largest tide of the year, and I went, and and I did have this, and my half-hour interview turned into an hour, but it was an an amazing conversation with seven monks about how the the role that the tide plays in their spiritual daily practice. Mm. And then you went to Venice. This is a city that's grappling with rising tides. Tell us about that. That's right. So Venice um, was founded in, the, um, I think, the 5th or 6th century, and it's been plagued by flooding from tides ever since it was founded. And I went there um, to really, as a, as a study, to see what this uh, modern city was doing to protect itself from rising sea levels and rising tides. Because today... Uh, San Marco Square in Venice gets flooded about 70 times a year, so a lot. And uh, what they're doing is they're closing off the gates of the entrances from their lagoon into the Adriatic Sea. And they've been working on this project for mm, about 20 years now, and they're getting close to being done. Probably in the next five years, those gates will be in operation. 
when we talk about uh, the threat of rising seas uh, here in this country, we think about the coastal cities like Miami, also in Boston. What lessons could we learn from places like Venice? Well, I think that, uh, the, you know, Venice went through about a 15-year public process. And I think I mentioned that really Venice has been dealing with tide issues ever since it was founded. And for a lot of years, it would, the ground was actually dropping faster than usual because they were extracting groundwater. So the, the land was dropping, the sea levels were rising. It created a, a, a very difficult and challenging situation. But what they arrived to within their public process is that they would, they would adapt a resilient um, attitude towards the tide. They would live with some flooding but um, they would try to protect the city from extreme flooding. And I think that's a really good lesson for all of us everywhere. And not every situation is the same. Miami has a different situation. New York has a different one. Bangladesh does. I also went to visit the San Blas Islands off of Panama, and they have a very different situation there. But in Venice, uh, they are able to actually block off the tide. So, again, it's really different everywhere, but I think the resilient attitude is a good one, meaning you're just not, you're not going to stop the tide, but we have to learn to live with it. You were taking us around the globe. I wanted to ask you what you learned in Scotland and Chile, for example, and how they view the tides as a, as a renewable energy source. Yes. So for a chapter on tide energy, I went um, to the Orkney Islands and to Chile, as you say, and... Uh, up in the Orkney Islands, there's a group called the European Marine Energy Center, and they are doing uh, experimentation on tide energy and probably the most work in the world right now. And they've got what they have is they have sites that are developed with infrastructure, and they um, allow different um, businesses and organizations to come in and set their devices in the water and test them. And uh, they're getting they're making a lot of progress there. And then for that same chapter, I went to the southern tip of Chile, to the Straits of Magellan, where they have tremendous tide energy resources, but nothing in the water yet. They'd like to because they import a lot of their energy, and it's a great place for tide energy, but um, they are ways off from having devices in the water that are producing electricity. In this country, Rhode Island and Maine have explored or are exploring uh, tidal energy. Did your opinion of using this as a, a renewable energy source, did it change after going to the Orkney Islands? Yes. Actually, I'm a, I've, I've spent most of my adult life in marine and land conservation, and I was a naysayer about tide energy when I went into the research, um, but I'm coming out as an advocate of it. I don't, I don't think it's the silver bullet, but I think it's a viable part of the renewable energy picture. It's more dependable and reliable than solar or wind, um, but it's also got its challenges. Uh, the, you know, the, the ocean, as anybody can imagine, is a very hostile environment. It's hard to develop engineering that can withstand the kinds of pressures that it has to withstand. And I think the debate, at least here locally, is um, the effect of the turbines on, on commercial recreational boating, um, concerns about fish and wildlife. Yes, all of those things. Um, the, the traditional uses of the water, you know, there, there are many, many levels, including environmental levels and um, interference, noise, um, even, in, even creating friction. That's, uh, that could change the tidal regime of some of these places. But I think if it's done carefully, 
and not, um, you know, I've, I've heard in some cases that they're, they're planning arrays of 500, you know, devices underneath the water in a one, in one narrow channel. And I, 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 you know, I'm not for that because I do think that, that, that kind of volume can have effects that, you know, are detrimental, but I think done with thoughtfulness and about the, the, the environmental implications and, um, and what the capacity is for each of these locations, I think it could be, it could be very, um, a very viable part of the puzzle. We mentioned wildlife. Uh, in your book, you talk about a particular species of bird, the sandpiper, which relies heavily on tides during its migration from the Arctic to South America. Can you talk about that? Yes, in the first chapter, I spent a fair amount of time in the Bay of Fundy, and there's a very small bird, as you mentioned, the sandpiper. It's a semi-palmated sandpiper that breeds up in uh, the Arctic, and they make uh, they fly from James Bay in the Arctic all the way down to Suriname each year, and then back again. And when they when they travel from the north to the south, it's about a 3,500 mile passage and they make one stop and that's in the Bay of Fundy. And it happens that with the Bay of Fundy large tides, as the tide goes out, there's a very small mud shrimp that these birds eat and they know they can get it in high volumes when they stop there in August. So they fly in and they're completely emaciated, skinny as can be when they fly in. And then they spend seven days traveling along the tide line, eating these little tiny mud shrimp. I mean, they're, they're smaller than the, the size of a grain of rice. And they eat, one bird could eat as many as 16,000 in one tide cycle. And they double their weight in about six or seven days, and then they take to the air nonstop down to Suriname. So it's a really interesting, interconnected, interdependent relationship between the birds, the Bay of Fundy tides, and these mud shrimp. And the Bay of Fundy, a place with one of the world's largest tides? That's right. It's It has a record tide of 54 feet, 6 inches, which is 10 feet larger than the next largest tide. And on Gava Bay in the Arctic, just about 1,600 miles north of the Bay of Fundy, coincidentally, also has a tide as large. So those two places share the record for the largest tides in the world. This is a, a really interesting book, Jonathan White. What do you want readers to take away from it? Well, I, I think that mostly it's a celebration of this fantastic um, ocean that we live right next to and and, uh, and that we actually know so little about. I mean, I I grew up on the ocean. I, I've, I've spent well, my whole life on it or near it or studying it or whatever, and I had no idea of the levels of complexity in the tides. And um, so I think really I just want to share uh, that and that just how, uh, what a miracle it is and how delighted I think um, we all should be uh, to be on it or near it or or living our lives um, close to it. Author Jonathan White is a marine conservationist, a sailor, and a surfer. He joined us today from the studios of Don Ross Productions in Eugene, Oregon, to talk about his new book, Tides, The Science and Spirit of the Ocean. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, how healthy is Long Island Sound? We'll hear about efforts to measure pollution along the shoreline. That's after the break.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, we've been focusing on the ocean today in Connecticut. We're lucky to border Long Island Sound. Over the years, attention has grown to reducing pollution of the sound. How is it doing today, and what efforts are underway to keep the estuary healthy? Joining us now by phone is Tracy Brown, director of Save the Sound. It's a program of the Connecticut Fund for the Environment. Tracy, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So give us a, a brief overview of, of the health of Long Island Sound, and then tell us a little bit more about this new study that's underway. Well, Save the Sound publishes a report card on the sound. Um, we had one that came out last fall, and we have a new one coming out um, this coming spring. And what we see in that report card, which really focuses on the ecological health of the sound, is that um, overall it's doing pretty well. We have... Um, Good grades, you know, we do an A, B, C, D, E, F report card like, like everyone gets at school growing up. And out in the eastern end, um, we have an A minus. As you head into the sound, um, in the middle, you get uh, Bs. But then as you head towards uh, the western end, we do have a C minus um, off the coast of Fairfield County um, and Westchester County. And then as you get in towards New York City, there it is an F grade. So what this is telling us is that, you know, there's more stress on the western end of the sound for two reasons. You have millions of people. You have the highest um, population density on any estuary in the U.S. at the western end of the sound. And you also have very low tidal flushing. So all the pollution that comes in from the metropolitan area really sits in the water and doesn't get pulled out to the, to the Atlantic like um, at the other end, in the eastern end of the sound. So it's a mixed story. Um, we have some investments that have been made, and we've seen improvements in water quality, but there definitely is more work to be done. So Tracy, when you talk about uh, more population over on the western side of the sound, you know, historically when we look at pollution in Long Island Sound caused from uh, sewage treatment plants? Yeah, so sewage treatment plants are one of the biggest contributors. But actually, I would, I would rephrase that to say it's not just the plants. It's our whole collection system, and it's also communities where they don't have municipal wastewater, but they're using septics and cesspools. So a lot of times people will point to the plants and say they're not doing a good job, but more often the problem is that our wastewater isn't making it to the plant. Mm. You have uh, millions of miles of pipe that runs under our homes and businesses and, and towns, and a lot of them are aging and uh, sometimes cracking and leaking. So you get what we call sanitary sewer overflows um, in communities when you have a lot of rain, and that's flushing raw sewage into our rivers and streams, which brings it into the sound. And you also have old um, cesspools and septics that can leach and release um, fecal bacteria into the water. So it's the whole system. It's not just the plants. The, the plants have actually made um, investments in reducing nitrogen getting into the sound as well as improving their treatment uh, for fecal bacteria. So the plants on balance are, mm -hmm. in, are in pretty good shape, if I could make a generalization, which is always a little tricky. <laughs> so uh, we were talking about the health of the, the open waters, lots of studies that have been done. But this new study, it's called the Unified Water Study. How is that different um, from past studies, and what are you focusing on? 
Yeah, so what we found when we did the report card is we have great available um, ongoing monitoring in the open water that's been funded for over a decade by the EPA that's really helped to guide um, our management decisions and our understanding of what's happening in the open sound. But we don't have uh, the same data for all the bays and harbors and coves, of which there are 116 um, encircling the sound. And the bays, harbors, and coves are often the places where people get in the water, where you have a beach or a marina or boat launch. And uh, we heard a lot from the public saying, well, how about my bay or harbor? If I see an A out in the water, does that mean that it's also an A in Stonington Harbor or Mystic River or you know any number of these places? And we know from uh, our best science that you can't really extrapolate from the open water water quality into those systems that they are actually unique they're more shallow they have different flushing rates depending on you know how open and closed they are to the open water um, and they also are typically the places where the rivers and streams that are bringing pollution off of our landscape off of our lawns and our parks and our streets flow right into those systems so we want to get out with the unified water study and start monitoring ideally in every one of those 116 bays and harbors um, to be able to tell the story of their unique health and to add that to future report cards and um, use it as a roadmap for management decisions and investments going forward. Now, uh, you mentioned the EPA and funding in the past. Uh, that's not expected to continue. So this reliance on uh, citizen scientists to help with the testing of the water. Tell me about uh, a little bit more about that effort. Well, we're definitely hoping it will continue. So that's, that's still uh, to be determined. And part of what we do at Save the Sound is lobby for the federal dollars to stay in place because um, the monitoring is, is so important. But to add the information on the bays and harbors would, in, would require an expansion um, of that funding, um, which is you know, less likely. So by using volunteer groups and um, community groups, academic groups, and nonprofits like Save the Sound and others, we can mobilize a lot of resources at a pretty low cost um, for people who are getting out in their own community. So instead of Connecticut Deep or even Save the Sound trying to hit all of these bays and harbors, what we've done is we've designed a study that can be easily used by a whole variety of groups, and we are recruiting and training groups to get out in their local waterways, conduct the study, and then share the data um, so we have it all in one place. Now, Tracy, we just have a couple minutes left. We mentioned briefly uh, nitrogen in the water. Talk about the impact. What's at stake if uh, this isn't this problem isn't uh, reduced in terms of what the nitrogen does to uh, the the life in the water? Yeah. So too much nitrogen uh, creates low oxygen zones that can lead to fish die-offs and make it hard for um, the the aquatic vegetation to survive. So you. You have dead zones for fish. You have decaying um, living shorelines, the shorelines that protect local communities from um, storms and surges. Um, also, nitrogen has been shown to uh, track with increased ocean acidification. So high nitrogen lo loads also help trigger increased acidification, which harms shellfish, makes it hard for them to form shells. And on a on a kind of direct um, human recreation level, it also, you know, it's a fertilizer, so it's triggering algae blooms 
and um, red tides and rust tides and other um, growth in the water that makes it unpleasant for people to swim and get in the water. So it's, it's bad for the wildlife, it's bad for recreation, and it's bad for all the local economies that rely on a healthy sound um, for jobs and tourism. The Unified Water stud- Study, as I mentioned, is underway. So what happens next? How long will this um, be taking place, this testing of the water, the bays and harbors, and where will it go? So we're hoping it'll it'll continue for quite a few years because, of course, you know the most valuable um, data sets are multi-year data sets, so you can see trends. This year is our inaugural season, and we're really happy to have 12 groups who are already signed up and out on the water as we speak. Um, and these 12 groups are covering 24 of our 116 bays and harbors. And we have another list of groups that are interested in starting in 2018. So we're hoping by next summer we'll be up to 20 groups and, you know, perhaps we'll get to um, 50 bays and harbors. That would be fabulous. Um, and we would like to grow until we get to all 116. I'd say after a couple years of that, we could probably assess which are the bays and harbors that are really stressed um, for nitrogen, where work needs to take place, and then we could probably focus on those problem areas, um, make some conservation investments, and then track to see um, how they're doing and what's successful. Tracy Brown is director of Save the Sound. It's a program of the Connecticut Fund for the Environment telling us about the unified water study underway. Uh, Thanks to some citizen scientists and others, the sound sleuths as they're called. Uh, We'll have more information on our website and we'll tweet out some links to this new study. Uh, Tracy, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. You can check out WMPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.